Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. In 1967, a new basketball league debuted, the ABA, and it certainly put a jolt into the game. The stylish red, white, and blue ball. Cities around the country that had never had professional basketball in places like Kentucky, Indiana, Dallas, Utah, and a three-point line to reward players who had the ability to score from way downtown. The Kentucky Colonels were the best when it came to three-pointers with Louis Dampier and Daryl Carrier. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, I'm going to talk with one of those long-range bombers, Daryl Carrier. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes. A tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to the 75th episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes. You know... When I launched this podcast, I had no idea how well it would be received or how long it would keep going. But here we are, episode number 75. That's pretty cool. Considering most of the heroes I talk about have long since passed, only on rare occasions do I get to speak with a forgotten hero. Well, this episode is one of those occasions, as one of the greatest to ever play in the ABA, Daryl Carrier, is my guest today. Daryl is a member of the ABA's all-time team. He's the all-time leader in three-point field goal percentage at 37.7%, and he finished his career with an average of exactly 20 points per game. Darrell played for one of the ABA's most legendary teams, the Kentucky Colonels. Now, I know at the end of episode 74 about Jerry Quarry, I mentioned that this episode was to be about the great Pierre Pilat. However, I changed it as, again, the opportunity to speak with a forgotten hero is a rare occurrence. And I owe two big Thank yous for helping me track down Daryl. The first goes to Gary West. Gary, if you remember, was my guest on episode 50 when he and I talked about the Kentucky Colonels. Gary wrote the book, Kentucky Colonels of the American Basketball Association, the real story of a team left behind. A key contributor to that book was Lloyd Pinky Gardner, who was the trainer for the Kentucky Colonels. Gary put me in touch with Pinky, who connected me with Daryl. So, a very big thank you to Gary West and Lloyd Pinky Gardner. 
Daryl Carrier was a terrific high school basketball player and was offered scholarships to Western Kentucky University and Kentucky University. He opted for Western Kentucky, and we'll talk about the reasons why during today's episode. After his college days were over, he was drafted by the St. Louis Hawks. St. Louis, now the Atlanta Hawks, had a pretty good team, and Daryl was unsure as to whether or not he was good enough to make the Hawks. So instead of trying out for St. Louis, he opted for the semi-professional game, or the Industrial League. And he found himself playing for one of the game's most historical teams, the Phillips 66ers. Playing for Phillips turned out to be a wise decision, but after three years and the opportunity to go home and play in the new ABA for a local team like the Kentucky Colonels was something Daryl couldn't turn down. So he left Phillips and his career as a professional basketball player was underway. What a career it was. And before we get into it, however, as always, a few notes for you. You can follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram. Look for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook or check out SportsFH.com. This website has more information about our guests, the forgotten heroes we talk about, and links to more information. Plus, just click the Contact Us tab and let me know how I'm doing. Make a suggestion for a future topic or just send a comment. That's sportsfh.com. Also, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or just write a good review. Thanks for helping. Now, back to Daryl. He only played with the Colonels for five years, and he finished his career with the Memphis Tams. But in total, those six seasons were filled with so much fun, and the competition he faced throughout the ABA included going up against guys like George Gervin, Rick Barry, Rick Mount, Dr. J, and Doug Moe and, of course, many other players who wound up in the Basketball Hall of Fame. But instead of me telling you about Daryl's career, let's have Daryl tell us himself now on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Daryl, thank you for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. I am thrilled you agreed to be here. I'm glad to be here, Warren. Awesome. Hey, let's start at the beginning. You know, they say places like Kentucky and Indiana, basketball is like a religion, much like hockey is in Canada. What did you find so enthralling about basketball? And when did you realize you had the skills to play at such a high level? Warren, I started off, I had an bro- older brother that uh, that played back high school basketball, and I was just a youngster. So I ordered me a ball, uh, a ball and gold, a little lace-up ball, costing $3.98, and I put it about, put it on the side of a crib about, uh, about six feet off the ground, and uh, second, I shot around that first day, and this 
we live on a farm. We did live on the farm when it was growing up. So the ball went over the fence with a bunch of hogs, and I know Sal took a bite of my ball, and that was all of my ball. <laughs> so I started uh, shooting cans. Uh, my mother opened a can of beans. I'd shoot that can through the little goal, or I'd shoot the rag balls through the goal, and and uh, I just loved the game, just starting off, and and it. It never dropped off. I just enjoyed it, enjoyed it. That's terrific. From what I've read, Daryl, the high school you attended no longer exists, Bristow High School. But you certainly had some great years there and some great games, including one where you scored 64 points. What do you remember about that game? And tell us a little bit about your high school team. Well, I had a coach that uh, his name was Jess Kimbrough. And he started me off as a youngster in seventh grade. And I would usually come out all the time. We'd score 30 points and I'd usually have 25 or 24. And, you know, the other guys, they weren't, weren't really highly skilled. And, and uh, of course, I had to work at my game. I worked at my game much harder than the other boys on my team. Um, but I, on that, uh, when I scored 64, Coach Kimbrough, he was really good to me. He let me play guard, and I was the tallest man on the team <laughs> because he recognized my outside shooting skills. And he knew if he put me under the basket, two or three would be around me. And, of course, a couple would be around me anyway coming down the floor. But I was a long-range shooter, and it was just a natural for me. So he put me out at the guard spot. And he retired and went to another school when I was a junior. And I had a, a coach by the name of Jim Hill, and he kept me at guard also. And uh, then he went back to his home school. My senior year had a guy named Jay Ack came in, and he kept me at guard. But uh, speaking of that 64-point game, I hit 28 out of 36 shots, and they didn't have the three-pointer back then. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so the rest of them were free throws. Uh, but I had a, a extremely good game, and after that, coaches from all over the country got to checking me out because it got in the Courier Journal, which is the largest paper here in Kentucky out of Louisville. And, and uh my picture and, and the, the write-up got in that paper, and so they, uh, the coaches kept notice all the way through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, they did take notice, and after such a terrific high school career, in which I think you averaged close, if not thirty points a game, all four years you were in high school, you were offered scholarships to different colleges, including the University of Kentucky and, of course, Western Kentucky. Why did you choose Western Kentucky instead of Kentucky? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> we grew we grew up like uh, Amish people. We were really close on the farm. I have, I'm a, from a family of nine children, and... Uh, my twin brother and I are the, the babies of the nine. And uh, so we had opportunity to go to Kentucky. Uh, we went up and paid them a visit or two. They wanted three players out of the state of Kentucky that year. They wanted me and they wanted Jeff Mullen. 
and he wanted a boy by the name of Tommy Clark, and Tommy Clark's the only one that went to Kentucky. Hmm. Now, one of the reasons I didn't go to Kentucky is Mr. Diddle coached basketball for 42 years here at the Western, and he stayed at my house about every other day. You could recruit you could cr- recruit a little differently back then than you do now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he'd wake us up in the morning, and my mother fix him a cup of coffee. He would... Uh, he just didn't want me to <laughs> leave. He didn't want me to leave Bowling Green, and he he fought for me and offered me a scholarship as a, when I was a sophomore. And the next year, he offered my twin brother a full scholarship. In Kentucky, offered me a scholarship, and he also offered my twin brother a scholarship. He was a great defender. He's a great defensive player. Uh, I had a coach Atkinson. He uh, was a trainer at University of Kentucky, and he was coach us our last year. And he said my twin brother was the best defensive player he's ever coached in 35 years of coaching. Wow. So I was the offensive player. My brother was a defensive player. And playing my brother one-on-one with his defense made me a better offensive player. So we um, – and the reason I didn't go to Kentucky is uh, – we were homebodies, and, and, and Western's only 10 or 15 minutes away. And we would come home every Friday night to, to spend the weekend with my mom and dad. Oh, that's and awesome. Some, and then sometimes during the week, sometimes during the week, we would come home and uh, just to visit for a few minutes. But when we'd come home on Friday night, if we had a game on Saturday, we'd go in with just a few miles away. We'd play the game. We'd come back home, spend the night. We'd leave for campus on Sunday night, and my mama would cry every time the twins would leave. <laughs> so that's how close our family was. And I'm afraid if I'd have gone to Kentucky, I'm afraid if I'd have gone to Kentucky, that I, we would probably quit the first month and come home because we were homebodies. Ah, uh, interesting. I have a son that played at Kentucky. Uh-huh. Uh, Josh Carrier, he, he played at Kentucky. Now, my older son, two years older, uh, Coach Crum, he offered them both a scholarship. Uh-huh. My, my oldest one decided to go, my youngest one decided to go to Kentucky, and he, he was there uh, with Tubby Smith. Uh, so Okay. Hey, let's go back to your brother for a second. I think that, Daryl, you and your brother have very unique spellings to your name. You are Daryl, D-A-R-E-L. I believe your brother was Harold, H-A-R-E-L. Is that correct? Right. Where where that do is. those where do those names come from? <laughs> they came from my mom and dad or some neighbor. I'm not sure where they came from. But uh, they uh that's a unique spelling on Daryl. It's D A R Y L D A R R E L D A R R E L L. And there's mm-hmm. all kinds of ways to spell in Daryl, but spelling Harold, you usually spell that H A R O L D. And uh, but that was, uh, I guess, because we were twins, they just wanted to make make one letter different. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's go back to uh, Western Kentucky for a second. That first year, you were with the Hilltoppers. You guys had a pretty good season. You went seventeen and ten, but the remaining years that you were at Western Kentucky were 
pretty tough going. Tell me about those teams and what happened after that first year. Okay, the, my first year, if we can pull up some freshmen that year, we've had some good teams. We had Clem Haskins and Dwight Smith and some great players come in as freshmen when I was a senior. Mm-hmm. But but when I was a, excuse me, a sophomore, we had the great Bobby Rasko was an All-American there, and Mr. Basketball State of Kentucky, Harry Todd, had a boy named Bobby Jackson, Jim Dunn. We could beat anybody in the country. We beat, we beat Dave Shellhouse. I mean, not Dave Shellhouse. We beat uh, the Busher. The Busher was wow. the beat. It was his last college game. We beat. And then we went on, and I believe beat nine in Oklahoma, Ohio. I'm not sure what team we played. I believe that's right. And then we got a hold of Ohio State, which had the great Jerry Lucas. They put five players in the pros. Uh Havlicek and all those guys, and uh, they beat us. But we had a we had a really great team. We played together. We, but now when all those boys graduated, Coach Diddle coached for forty two years, and he was sick and didn't get out and recruit. And we just we were just weak. It's just like put LeBron James out there with nobody around him, <laughs> and and so LeBron, if he's going to win championships, he's he picked some players to go with him, and that's the way that works. And and I scored twenty six points a ball game the senior year, and, and uh, we didn't <laughs> win many ball games. But it really made me a better pro because I was I got double teamed all the time, and that that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And when when I was at Western, I when I was in high school, Mister Diddle said, "Come play my All American," so I'd go down and, and play Bobby Rasco once. And I love to play players one on one, and uh, I'd go down and, and play Bobby. Uh, he, he, I learned a lot of basketball from Bobby because he'd hold me, and and he was defense good. He just reached and grabbed me, and I would I learned how to knock him off, and I learned how to pull him to him. And I just learned a lot of things from him, and I learned how to play him when he went to his left. I could block his left hand hook when he went to his right. I wouldn't let him go to his right, so. <laughs> I just learned a lot of basketball from that All-American, and it carried over all the way through my pros. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, before we get to the pros, I have one other question about college. Kentucky had some pretty good teams back then, too, and Adolph Rupp was their coach. I got to wonder, do you ever sit back and wonder what might have happened had you chosen Kentucky over Western Kentucky? I know earlier you said, eh, maybe after a month I would have come home. But do you ever think about it? I've, I've thought about it. I have because I tell you what, you go to Kentucky, and uh, now my son's a pharmaceutical manager over a bunch of reps, and when he walks in the office, all they want to do is talk Kentucky basketball. Kentucky <laughs> And, and people die blue here in the state of Kentucky. That's just that's just the way it is. I mean, they just die blue. Uh, I had a lot of people just try to force me to go to Kentucky, but I was just a homebody. And I I thought I had an excellent career coming out of Western. And, and Tom Nash was up there. He was an All American for Kentucky, and he came out with the Colonels and last one. He lasted a half a year and left. He, he didn't fit in. I guess he's trying to play a little baseball. And, mm-hmm. But uh, basketball, 
I <laughs> Rupp really wanted me. He tried hard to get me, but uh, one player he didn't want, and, and he made the best player in the country was uh, Larry Bird. <laughs> Larry, Larry Bird. I talked to a scout, and the scout said we went over to look at Larry. And we said, "Well, Larry's a pretty good player, but he's just a tad slow. His grades are not that good, and we don't think he can make it over here." So Rupp didn't bother about getting him after that. Mm, interesting. So all these coaches, they make mistakes along the way who they pick and sure and some who they don't pick. Hey, Daryl, there's no doubt that you had professional talent, and the fact that the St. Louis Hawks drafted you supports that. But you decided to play semi-pro ball with the Phillips 66ers. So I have a couple of questions here. First of all, tell us about that decision to play for Phillips instead of St. Louis. I mean, did you even go to the to camp with St. Louis, or did you go straight to the 66ers? There's an article, too, out that I went out there and got cut, but I didn't show up at their camp. I did not go to the St. Louis camp. Mm-hmm. St. Louis wanted me to come out and work out, and I said, the only way I'll come out is with with a no-cut contract. And and I knew they just gave a no-cut to the number one draft pick, and the number one draft pick that year was Jeff Mullins out of the state of Kentucky, the one that Kentucky wanted along with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I knew they only had one no-cut contract and, and because they only had 12 teams back then. And uh, so you had players running out your ears. And I was drafted, I believe, eight or nine or somewhere along that. And I knew that I didn't have a chance over there with uh, they only keep one player, no more than two. Uh, so I... Had a friend uh, that I played with in college, Bobby Rasco, was an All American, and he was out there with Phillips. So <clears throat> back then, I thought Phillips was better than being in the NBA, and I'll tell you why. The NBA paid about twelve thousand dollars, and uh, I could have taught school for thirty six hundred dollars a year back then, hmm. and I could go to Phillips sixty six, and and. Uh, Make about ninety five hundred a year, and then we played on the road all the time. And when we played on the road, uh, it, well, Phillips would take care of their players. Some of them were, were president of the company. You know, I mean, it was mm-hmm. uh, they really took care of their basketball and people, and, and uh, all of them had great jobs after it's over. If you played in the pro ball, then you quit. You may be walking the streets or whatever. Uh, but I decided to go with Phillips. And man, what an experience. I played in a world tournament as a leading scorer. And I played in the Pan American Games, and, and uh, JoJo White was beat me up at one point. Uh, he was leading scorer in that. And the West also played on that team, and we won the gold medal. Then I played with two national teams, and uh, Lou Hudson, Jack Marin, Dave Shellhouse, uh, a bunch of uh, first team. Well, the first pick for NBA teams uh-huh. and uh, number one draft for number one teams. And I came out of there and, and was leading scorer with those boys. And I said, well, and Dave Shellhouse was the first round draft pick for the Chicago Bulls. And I beat him out and, and he got a little upset and came home because he wasn't getting any playing time. 
so I had one heck of an experience with the Phillips 66ers. We traveled, traveled all the time, and, and we played colleges. We beat the Texas Western 14 points on their own floor. And, and, and we had about six or seven players to go with the ABA when they went into existence. We were just like a professional team. We won about 90% of our games. And uh, it was one one great experience. And then while I was on the road back then, my rent was $20 a month because I roomed with a couple more players and we were on the road. Time. And we had $60 between us, 20, 20, 20, three ways. And so then we they paid us per diem on the road. And so I didn't have to cash any of my checks when I was with Phillips. So when I got back home, I just bought me a farm. Wow. Well, that's really cool. Where was the team based? Where Where was your your well, home for Phillips? Our, our Bartlesville, Oklahoma, and we had uh, a lot of executives there, limousine service over to uh, uh, over to Tulsa Airport. Uh, so we uh, we it was a great experience. I mean, it was uh, I, I look back on that, and it was even better than professional basketball. It was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Did you have to practice every day with the team? Who was the coach? And did you have to work? Like, did you have to have an office job there? How did all that work? Well, while you were while you were uh, on the team, <laughs> I didn't I didn't work much, but I did have a job. I did have a job, and uh, I was only there three years. And, and then my last year, uh, they put me in the office, working in the office, and on real estate proposals, buying service stations here and there all over the country. And before that, I was in a service station. They start you off at the bottom. And uh, so I, but I wasn't there. I wasn't on the job much. I was uh, I, I was overseas playing ball uh, during the summer months. And during the winter months, I was with Phillips playing all that year. So we did not work much, but we got paid for our job. <laughs> We get paid for a job instead of basketball. <laughs> now, now you said a lot of it was was tournaments. Was there a a league of some sort, or was it strictly tournaments? And 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 where where did you play here in the states? What were the venues like in the crowds? Oh, they were. We had good crowds. What we do is we play. We play. Uh, we had a schedule of a lot of colleges all over the country, and. Uh, and the colleges usually didn't have a chance with us, no matter who we played, because we got the best players, you know, from each college to come play with us. Mm-hmm. But then uh, we uh, we just had uh, we played colleges, and then we had a, a AAU league. Not many of us. Uh, Akron Goodyear's was a, they they paid their players similar to us working for the big Goodyear Tire Company. Mm-hmm. And a lot of their boys went to the ABA too. They were great players, and we would uh, we played in two or three times a year. And then we just have a regular schedule. We play out on the West Coast. We play anywhere. We play all over. Mm-hmm. So we just had a they make a schedule out, and it was good advertisement for Phillips sixty sixers because when when you'd send us out, we had our own plane, which was the DC three. It'd seat about 25 people. We had our own steward on the plane that would keep us fed, keep good food to us. 
And then we, some of them would play cards on the traveling. And uh, then we had a piling and coal piling. And I was the only one on the plane. It was a slow plane, you know, it didn't <laughs> go, like these jets, but we it was our, it was our own plane. We could leave when we want to, come back when we want to. It was a safe plane. And I'd get sick on the plane occasionally because you'd hit some air pockets and the pilot and co-pilot put me in between them. <laughs> and I, I could look straight out the plane. I didn't get air sick, but if I was in the back and looking out the side window or feel those bumps without looking out, but I sat up in between the pilot and co-pilot. They had me a seat up there everywhere we traveled. And I knew <laughs> one of them had gotten sick. I could have gotten in there and, and, and flown the plane as much as I watched them do everything. <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, so after three years with the 66ers, a new basketball league was starting up, the American Basketball Association, the ABA, and it needed players. So a few of you decided to leave the 66ers and go out for the ABA. So at that point, why did you decide to go to the NBA or did you even consider going to the NBA. I kindly considered the NBA uh, when I was playing with Wes Unsel. I just said if I could play with Wes Unsel, I could really be a star because I scored 32 points in the Pan American Games, and he was responsible for a lot of those points. I could run over here and push my man a little bit. He'd have it in my hand. I'd have it in the basket. I'd break over here really quick and break back at a certain point. He'd have it in my hand. I'd have it in the basket. So that record is still a record today, 32 points. I believe Michael Jordan had 27, Oscar Robertson 29. and uh, But it was all because of Wes Unsel. So when I played so well with Wes, and Wes after that year went with the, the – Washington. Yeah, well, yeah, went with Washington Bullets. And, and I said to myself, I'd like to play with him, but I didn't make any contacts or try to play with him. And then – when the ABA came into existence, uh, somebody contacted my brother-in-law, or my brother-in-law said something to me, and somebody said, well, man, we'd like to get Daryl Carter in here. So I said, well, I had a guy named Kendall Ryan that was 6'10 that played for Rice University. So I called Kendall, and I said, you want to go talk to the Kentucky Colonels? And he said, yeah, I'd like to. So I brought him into Kentucky, and we went in and, and uh, we talked with them, and uh, they they asked Kendall a few questions. He said, "Daryl's doing all my talking." <laughs> I was kind of, I was kind of the, the, the negotiator, you know. Uh, we we got together, and uh, so they uh, <laughs> we got us a two year no cut contract for fifteen thousand. We was making ninety five hundred out Phillips in. And wow. We'd have been wise to have probably stayed at uh, Phillips because that company really t- takes care of their ball players. Mm-hmm. But we uh, <clears throat> we decided that, well, it's hard to leave. It's hard not to come back to your home state when you have a professional team here in your home state. Sure. Yeah. What, was, there, was, was there an ABA draft or was everybody a free agent? How did you end up with the Kentucky Colonels? I mean, did they draft you or they were just able to sign whoever they wanted? 
we could go with anybody we wanted to. We'd been out of basketball that long. And uh, <clears throat> Anaheim made a big play for me because I played for Hal Fisher in some of these uh, trips that we took. And he he loved my game, and he kept telling me to talk with Anaheim, and he was part of the Anaheim organization. And, of course, I didn't say I wasn't or I would. and and uh, But he really made a big play when I was working on some of the playing in some of these all-star teams. Uh, but Kentucky Colonels made the play for me. And uh seemed like they may have signed Louis Dampier. He may have been the first player signed, but I, I, I was one of the very first to sign. So let's talk a little bit about those early days in the ABA. And I guess the first thing, you just were talking about playing for the Phillips 66ers and how big the crowds were and and how nice the venues were and how you traveled on your own airplane. What about in the ABA, the early days? It It's like you might have had it better, like you said, with the Phillips 66ers because you played in some some tough venues where maybe there wasn't heating and the plumbing wasn't all that good and the crowds weren't showing up. Talk about those early days. You know, those players really make it sound a lot worse than what it was. <laughs> like you talk to Pinky or some of those guys, they'd make it, oh, rain was coming in the roof and i never seen any of that. Mm-hmm. And they really, they really jacked it out of line. And, uh, but now, we had some really good crowds. Indiana had super crowds. Kentucky had super crowds. You go to uh, Pittsburgh, they didn't draw too much. Mm-hmm. And then they did have ice under the floor, and, and then it was a little cool out there shooting, and I liked the gym to be warm. And uh, But uh, I thought that uh, I thought it was pretty first class starting off. But they did get into the draft after they picked their first team. Uh, like, for instance, uh, ABA was a little sharper than the NBA because the ABA said, hey, don't pick the best player closest to you. And so Indiana picked Rick Mount. Mm-hmm. And, and then uh, Kentucky picked Dan Issel. And uh, New Orleans picked Pistol T. And of course, he went to the NBA. About half of them went to the NBA and half of them went to the ABA. But uh, that first year, but after that, I guess it was a normal draft. But the first year, uh, our second year, something comes along in there, they uh, had their picks to where uh, you get the best player closest to the franchise instead of uh, Indiana trying to get Dan Issel or Kentucky trying to get Rick Mount. You know, you, you let them stay in the state that they're familiar with. Mm-hmm. Sort of like a territorial draft uh, to 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 help keep the home crowd familiar with the players. That's right. That's right. It's uh, it, Kentucky. Kentucky always is a big draw. They they sell out all the time. Kentucky basketball. So it was good to get some of the Kentucky uh, players over there uh, with the Kentucky Colonels, like. Uh, we got Dan Essel, of course. First of all, we got uh, Louis, Louis Dampier. Yeah, yeah. At Louis, and after Louis, a Conley boy was over there and tried out, played one game, and the Army got him. And uh, 
then uh, Tot Nash was over there. Uh, but then we had uh, a couple of Western Kentucky boys, too. Bobby Rasco and I played on three different teams together. We played at Western, and then we played with the Phillips 66ers, and we played with the Kentucky Colonels. And That's now we awesome. guard. Now we garden together. <laughs> That's cool. That's so cool that you've maintained a friendship with him for so many years, almost your entire life. That's right. Since I met him in college, we've been friends ever since. And we, we raise a garden here on my farm. I have a farm and we raise a, raise a garden every year together and enjoy each other. That's cool. That's really cool. Hey, let's talk about the ball that the ABA used. It was so unique with the red, the white, and the blue. Did it feel different than a standard basketball? Did the color pattern help with shooting? How did the characteristics of the ball differ than a standard basketball? Did they? Did it? Well, let me tell you about the ball. It may have been a little weaker quality when they started off, or we had some practices, but after a little bit, you get the same quality ball, only make it colored. you got to have a ball with the right weight about it. It can't be too too light, and it can't be too heavy. It's got to be a normal basketball. And uh, the color out there shooting in practice, it didn't take you but a day or two to get used to it. You didn't pay attention to the color. Mm-hmm. No, you didn't pay attention, but, you know, the first day or two, it was different, and maybe you'd shoot it and watch the thing turn. And, uh, but after a while, you just watch the bottom of the net. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another thing the ABA had was a three-point line. How cool was that, and how did you work the three-point play into your game the three-point play <clears throat> well there was two people on the team that was natural three-point shooters that we they were just made for us and that was daryl carey and louis Dempty. Mm-hmm. and uh, we uh we could shoot from the three-point or beyond the three-point with it without any effort i mean it was just natural we we, we grew up shooting a long shot mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh that's, that's really, some of my teammates, they couldn't, you know, top the keys about as far as they could shoot. But Louie and I, you know, just if somebody was off of us or somebody gave us daylight from 25 feet out, we just let her fly and, and it was a good chance to go in. Mm. And you guys, you and Louie put a lot of, a lot of balls from three point range into that basket. Tell us a little bit about the early days of the Colonels. They were one of the more stable and better teams in the, in, in the ABA. Well, we hired a boy by the name of Johnny Givens, our first coach. And he came in and he was quite a salesman. He sold himself into being the coach for the Kentucky Colonels. But he was a high school coach, hadn't had any experience at the professional level. <clears throat> so he, uh, we didn't win too many games on the start, so they they did fire him. But we were playing in New York. Every time you throw the ball to somebody, he wants you to go to the ball. And half the time you throw the ball, you go away from the ball. But you'll come back to the ball. And But he wanted to, he just, they could scout us and say, just get in the passing lane because they got, they're going to pass it and go to the ball. And uh, 
one day we New York beat us pretty good there in New York. So uh, the next day I took my teammates out on this parking lot and I said, I want to show you guys something. I said, I'm going to call this play special. And if I pass it over to the other guard, I'm going to get to shoot it. I'm going to go in under the basket, pop out behind a screen. That's for me. If I throw it to the forward, it's to the center. I'm going to go in and pick him. He curls off of me. And then I had that same. I said, if I throw, if I keep the ball and holler special, that's for the forward to get the shot. And I said, we're going to call all of this special. <clears throat> so we had, we got beat the night before. And we went out. We went out. And I'd come down the floor and say special. And we'd run through the plays out on the parking lot that day. And I never tried to coach before in my life. And then didn't try to coach after that. But I did coach that one game. And I came out. I came down the floor and I'd say special and I'd throw it over to my teammate and I'd go around and pop out. And they had me a couple of screens and I'd pop out and I'd hit a bucket or two. And then I'd run a play for the center where we'd get him a shot close to the basket. And, and I called all of the special. It determined who got the shot where, where we passed the ball. And uh, so we called all of it special. And after we scored about three or four times, the coach jumped up from the sideline and said, keep running us. <laughs> <laughs> so you were you were teaching the coach his job. Well, he, he got fired shortly after that. But we uh, And then we got some coaches after that that really knew what they were doing. All of them that came in really knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, well, you know. Talked about the three-pointer. We just, uh, Louie and I, we just go to the sideline and, and, and Paul would come up and pick for us. And, and we would just, I could say, nice screen artist. And the guy looked down, and both of us had real quick releases. And we just have her in the basket, you know. We just, we had a guard oriented offense. Louie and I, uh, Gene Rhodes expected us to score 50 points between us. And he said every time we scored 50, we could win. One of us may have 40, and the other may have. 18 or 20 and next game the other have 35 the other have 25 but mm-hmm. he, he expected us to get fit Gene Rhodes was our second coach and he expected Louie and I to get uh, he expected us to get the 50 points mm-hmm. and uh, you guys the, you, you and Louie were a really formidable backcourt I mean you you guys even when you look at the game today certainly played a little different but when you talk about a tandem, you know, two guys playing together, you guys were about as formidable a backcourt as there was. And even looking today, I mean, it, you'd be hard pressed to find a backcourt that worked as well, that works as well together today as you two did back then. Yeah, they, they came out with the best backcourts in basketball. They ranked Louie and myself sixth best out of all the players they played. I think Jerry West and, and Gail Goodrich was number one, I believe. And, and uh, they even had some college guards in there. But Louie and I, we really complimented each other. He was a great shooter and had a really quick release. And I had a, I had a quick release. I had a really quick release. And, uh, 
I mean, we I played a lot of one-on-one, so I knew how to get, get if one man was guarding me, I could go get a shot on one man. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I learned that in college. People doubled me, you know, when we had those weak teams, they double me and double me. And I'd still get my 26 a game. And, uh, so so shooting shooting from downtown, you and Louie, that was a big, big part of the Colonel's offense, was it not? It really was. And what that does, if, you, if you're way out in the court and people have got to guard you way out there, that just opens it up for everybody else. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. opens the game up. Now, if you can't shoot and everybody plays a real tight defense, you know, nobody can score if the defense is really tight around the basket and all that. But Louie and I kept it – we kept our court really spread out because of our three-point percentage. They had to they had to guard us way out in the floor. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the guards couldn't double-team our inside men. Mm-hmm. So they had to be looking to guard us because we was most of the offense in the first four or five years. Sure. Hey, as the ABA grew and started to attract some of basketball's bigger names, how did or did the style of play change? And at what point did you think that the Colonels might actually be just as good or maybe even better than some NBA teams? Well, a lot of people who says the Kentucky Colonels were better than the NBA, most of the NBA teams. We but if you'll check, if you'll check, I believe that last two or three or four years, the ABA beat the NBA two games to their one in these exhibition games. Yep. Before the NBA bought them out. Uh, here's the kind of team we had after after the first three or four years. We had Dan Essel and Artis Gilmore, Louis Dampier, Daryl Carrier, and Cynthia Powell. And some great and some great people off the bench could come in and spell us anytime, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Walt, Walt Simons and Mike Pratt's and your Bobby Rascos and we uh, we had a <clears throat> tremendous ball club with the we had big artists. He was strong, about seven feet tall. Dan Essel six nine, and and they uh, play one at a high post and one at a low post. And Dan could drive it or shoot it out there at the free throw line. And then Louis Dampier and I could. They had to guard us, and so that kind of opened it up for you big people where they could really operate. So we had a tremendous team after. Uh, well, we always had a decent team. Uh, we, there's a guy named Goose Ligon started off with us. Mm-hmm. From Kokomo, Indiana, and uh, he was about six eight and one of the best rebounders I've ever seen in basketball. And he could score around the basket, and he he was wasn't a good shooter, but buddy, he could you couldn't stop him. He was just he was great. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did you guys ever think that maybe the point of the ABA was to get the NBA to look at? putting teams in different cities and that the goal was to merge the leagues. What was the feeling amongst the players? What was the goal of the ABA? Well, I never thought about the NBA buying them up. Really, uh, the, the organization from St. Louis was really smart. They said, you don't owe us anything for our franchise. Just give us the TV rights. And the TV rights was millions of dollars a year. <laughs> and then... 
you could have bought a franchise. We could we could have Louisville right now is trying to get a trans, mm-hmm. uh, franchise. And, and uh, back then, you could have probably gotten one for four or five million dollars. Uh, and now they're worth a billion. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they're worth a, they're worth a lot of money. They're worth a lot of money now because of your TV rights. You know, players used to get players uh, not many years ago used to get four or five million dollars was a lot of money, and with all the TV rights, is going up to forty million a year. Mm-hmm. So just think, think of the, what the TV has done to professional basketball. We didn't have all that. Nope. So the Colonels, your your first year, you guys made the playoffs. Your second, and and you made it to the Eastern Division semis. Ultimately, you lost to Minnesota three games to two. Your second year, you you only made, uh, you know, you went one round and you lost to Indiana four games to three. Your third year, 69-70, you made it to the finals, or the Eastern Division finals, I'm sorry, and again, you lost to Indiana. And then your fourth year, the 1970-71 season, you went 44 and 40. You beat the Miami Floridians in the first round of the playoffs in six games, the Virginia Squires in the semifinals in six games, but you ultimately lost to the Utah Stars in the championship four games to three. What can you tell us about that series against the Stars and why were they able to beat you? I can tell you a story. If, if Frank Ramsey listened to Daryl Carrier that night, we've been champions. All right, yeah. Let us let us hear it. That, that's another. That's another game. I tried to coach in, and the one that's the only time I've ever coached. I talked to talked to uh, Frank Ramsey. He was her coach, and I said, Frank, Glenn Combs is an explosive player. And I said, I own him. I offered our whole, I offered our front office, all the players, their wives. If I couldn't hold him under 12 points, that I'd buy everybody a, a, a big dinner. And so they put me on him. One night he got, uh, he got 28 points, and I said, hey, he can't score 12 on me. So they put me over on him. So I guarded him. He couldn't get his 12. <clears throat> then, we go out to Utah in that final game, and I talked to Frank. I had lunch with him. I said, hey, don't take me off of Glenn Combs. I said, he's an explosive player. If you keep me on him, we'll win this thing. And he just kind of smiled, didn't say anything. So they had a habit of playing me one quarter and two minutes of the second quarter, and then they would give a couple of substitutes a little time and, and another one a little time and then play me all the second half. Well, when they put that substitute in there, he hadn't scored a point on me. When they scored, when they put that substitute in there, he'd come down wiggling and carrying on, and he could shoot it like Daryl Carey and Louis Decker. He raised up and knocked off two or three threes. Then Zelmo Beatty got a rebound. He snowbird and got a layup on And I really concentrated on him, on him. And uh, he broke our back. When they took me out of the ball game, and mm. then at halftime, at halftime, they had a nice lead lead on us. Halftime, Frank Ramsey looked over and said, "Daryl, I'm not taking you off of him. 
I just said to him, I didn't say anything to him. I tried to keep a good attitude. But I wanted to say, hey, you've already messed up. I told you to not take me off of him. He wouldn't have those points. But I didn't say that. I didn't want to be bad and bad attitude. And uh, But I got out there the second half, and uh, Dan had a really good game, and uh, I start shooting threes, and I got up. I think I scored, I don't know, I believe 34 points, and I, I brought them back within range, but the, the range was too spread out too much for me to bring them back all the way. Yeah, the, you, you guys lost by 10 points. Well, I, I'm telling you what, if, it, if, if Ramsey would have done what I told him to, and of course, I, he, he didn't mean to let players tell him how to coach, but if he'd have listened to me, we'd have won that ball game. I, I really believe that to, until today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they had some great athletes, don't get me wrong. They were good. They had some great players. Sure. Yeah, no, they had they had Zelmo Be- Beatty, they had Willie Wise and Rick Mountain. Oh, yeah. Willie Wise was tough, tough as he was tough, Willie Wise. They had a tough team. But we could we would have beat them, I, I really believe, and I've thought of that game a lot of times. I said, Hey, if Ramsey had a gone with what I said, I really truly believe we'd have won that ball game because Glenn Combs broke her back when I got out of there. When he just broke he broke her back. He he's the one that uh, one that exploded and really basically won the game because everybody else was just good and steady all the way through, but he just broke loose and went wild. The Colonels had long been thought of as one of the elite teams in the ABA, but were unable to get over the hump and win a championship. But that all changed in the 1970-71 season. Well, almost. The Colonels went just 44-40 and during the regular season and finished second in the Eastern Division, 11 games behind the expansion Virginia Squires. Virginia had some really good talent, including Doug Moe and Charlie Scott. The Colonels, on the other hand, had experience. In the first round of the playoffs, the Colonels dismissed the Miami Floridians four games to two, and then they had to face the Squires in the Eastern Conference Finals. Kentucky beat the Squires in six games, and then in the finals against the Utah Stars, Kentucky came up short. Now, of course, Daryl talked about the disappointment in not winning, but it certainly wasn't his fault. In those 19 playoff games, Daryl averaged 19.4 points per game and was 21 of 58 from downtown. This, after enjoying a season in which he played all 84 games for Kentucky, averaging just over 16 points a game. The Colonels seemed well on their way to reaching the heights they had always dreamed of, winning the ABA championship. But Darrell wasn't going to be a part of it. A new coach came on board for the 71-72 season, Joe Mullaney. And Darrell's career with the Kentucky Colonels was about to take a significant change. Well, that that 70-71 team that made it to the ABA championship really developed into one heck of a team. I mean, like we said, each of your first four years, um, you guys made the playoffs. And you played virtually every game. 
So tell me what happened in your fifth year, the 1971-72 season. You played in only 23 games, and the team had a new coach, Joel Mullaney. How did he change the team, and what happened to you? Well, I went in shortly after season. I went in, and I had uh, herniated disc, herniated disc. In my back. Uh-huh. And I played with that for a while and played with it. It got so painful, I said, I need to have surgery. So I went and had surgery. And, uh, man, after I had surgery, I came home to my, well, my mother and dad's home, stayed for three weeks, and stayed in bed a little bit. And I'd get up and walk, and I'd go to bed, and they wanted, they told me how to do it. Then I went back to my apartment, and I, go to the park and I'd walk so much and I'd go to the, I'd go to rehab and they'd put weights and things in my arms and legs and, and, and get my back real still where it wouldn't hurt it. I'd be exercising with the right things to get me back on the floor. And then it didn't take them long to get me back on the floor. My back was stiff. And, uh, so when they got me back on the floor, I played, uh, I could stop and hit a jump shot any, anywhere just like I always could, but I couldn't reach down and pick a ball up much if he was real low. And uh, it took me a while to recuperate from that back surgery. And then, so since I had the back surgery, Kentucky Colonels decided to, uh, to bring Rick Mount in because they didn't want somebody with a back, back mm-hmm. problem. Mm-hmm. They brought Rick Mount in, and then uh, Memphis Town, <laughs> Memphis Town's called and said, "I hear you had back surgery." I said, "I have." They said, "Would you like to come and play?" I said, and I said, "Yeah, I'll guarantee my back be okay if something happens in the back. You don't owe me anything." But I said, uh, "They said we we, we want you because uh, I think uh, Adolph Rupp was the." Uh, had something to do with that team, so he knew my background really well. And so I went to Memphis, and I wasn't down there no time at all to tore my Achilles tendon and tape. This is where things got muddy and complicated for Daryl Carrier and the Kentucky Colonels. Before Daryl went to Memphis and after playing in the finals with the Colonels in that 1970-71 season, Daryl and the Colonels embarked on an historic 68-16 and 16 campaign. Daryl was a part of that team in the early going, but that herniated disc changed everything. Plus, holding out during training camp didn't help either. Daryl began the season in the Colonels' starting lineup, and through November, he was averaging just over 14 points per game, and then he got hurt. Darrell would be out for all of December through the end of March. But by then, the Colonels were rolling, and Mullaney couldn't find a spot for Darrell in the lineup. Darrell saw limited action in Kentucky's final two games of the regular season, and when the playoffs got underway, he was still on the bench and saw very limited time in two games. Daryl's days as a member of the Kentucky Colonels had come to an end. After the season, as Daryl just said, the Memphis Tams came calling. Daryl still thought he could contribute, 
coming off the bench for the Tams. He played about 11 minutes a game and was averaging just 4.7 points per game. Daryl thought he could do more, but against New York on December 12th, he tore his Achilles. And that was it. Daryl Carrier's days as a professional basketball player had come to an end. Along the way, though, he played against the best the ABA had to offer. I want to do what I call name association. I'm going to say a name, and you tell me the first thing that comes to mind. And let's start with your backcourt mate, Louis Dampier. Quick release and a great shooter. Dan Issel. You throw it in there and you never see it again. Artis Gilmore. One of the strongest people that ever played the game. All right, so time out. Tell me a little more about Artis Gilmore. I mean, he really was a transformational player. He got better all the time. He couldn't pass the ball. He, he uh, I mean, he wasn't a great passer like Wes Olson, people like that. I, I've never played with too many really great passers uh, that could get you when you needed to get the ball. Uh, but he, uh, you throw it down to him and he was strong, strong, and he could work around and dunk over people or he could hit you back with a jump shot or he could come up and set a really strong screen. And, and when a man that size sets a screen, you know, you come off of him, the center can't come up and get you because you can already have a shot out before he comes and gets you. Mm-hmm. And of course, as big as he was, he didn't roll all that quick and all like that. But he was a he was a great teammate and a great person, and I really thought a lot of him. Goose Ligon. <clears throat> Goose could uh, play with anybody. One of the best rebounders I've ever seen in basketball. Gene Rhodes. Gene Rhodes, the coach. Yes, sir. Uh, he had a. He had. He was quick tempered. Uh, he expects you to. He expect a lot out of you. Uh, and uh, if one or two on the one or two on the team loafed a little bit, he'd find the entire team a hundred dollars. And a hundred dollars back then was a lot of money. <laughs> I'm sure. Joe Mullaney. I didn't know much about Joe Mullaney. I, I, he just, uh, just a mild-mannered guy. Talked about Will Chamberlain. He said not too many seven-footers. You don't see too many old seven-footers walking around. So he's talking about Wilt a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't. That's about all I know about Joe. John Y. Brown. <clears throat> John Y. Brown. He was a uh, he was a nice guy. He was one of the owners of the team. His wife was and. Uh, he uh, he didn't come around much. He'd just see if the game speak to you. Nice, nice gentleman. Mm-hmm. Okay, a fun one. I don't know if you remember this person or not, but if you do, tell me about her, Penny Ann Early. Penny Ann Early, yeah, I remember her very well. We had a guy by the name of Charlie Maston wanted to promote uh, women women into the basketball game. And how he pulled that off, I don't know. It's silly. It's really silly. <laughs> uh, I think uh, she came out to the game, and and uh, they put her in the game, and 
I think Bobby Rasco uh, either passed the ball into her, or, and then they took her right out of the game. So it was a that was all it was to it. All right, let's go back now. So you hurt your back when you were with Kentucky, and the Memphis Tams were willing to take a chance on you, and you go and you play for Memphis, and really. You know, outside of the couple of years that you spent with the Phillips 66ers, you were never really that far away from home. So how tough was it for you to leave Kentucky and go play for the Memphis Tams? Well, I didn't like being away from home. I, I was a homebody, like I said. And you know what I did when I was at Western, come home, spend a weekend every weekend with my parents, and my mom would cry every time and leave on Sunday night. So uh, I, I didn't like being away from home. In fact, my first year at Phillips 66 or Bartlesville, Oklahoma, I came home 12 times that year, once a month, to see my family. Mm-hmm. And so it was uh, tough for me being away from home, and I finally got used to it. And uh, maybe... My three years, my last three years at Western Kentucky was wonderful years because I made the adjustment that first year. But my first year, it was rough making the adjustment, mm-hmm. and we were just uh, homebody people, and and we didn't like being away from home, being away from our families. So that's that's how I grew up. And then, of course, like you said, you got hurt. You you tore your Achilles while you were with Memphis, sort of a a disappointing end to what was really a wonderful and outstanding career in the ABA. Was that it for basketball? Did you try to latch on with another team? Did you try to coach? What happened to Daryl Carrier after his days with Memphis were over? Well, uh, I was a, no, I came back in the, in the, Got my real estate license and, and uh, auctioneer's license, and and uh, became an auctioneer. And it goes like this: <laughs> All right. So now say all of that in slow motion. I have no idea what you were just saying. <laughs> I'm an auctioneer, and you're not supposed to know everything. <laughs> That's awesome. That's got to be a lot of fun. Well, I, uh, you know, my basketball, I I was a dedicated player, and, and uh, nobody worked any harder at their shooting or worked any harder at the game or on their defense than I did. I worked awfully hard, and I stayed in shape. I didn't drink or smoke. I never drank a beer or smoked a cigarette. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So I'm a clean-cut guy that worked awfully hard. And I came back home, and uh, I met the love of my life after finishing basketball. Well, that is terrific. I met the love of my life. I've never I've been married one time, and, boy, she's a wonderful, she's wonderful inside and out. That's a blessing. That's an absolute I, blessing. And I mean you're talking about that. Basketball has been great, but I wouldn't take my wife and family for all the basketball in the world. And I mean, it's it was I run into the right girl at the right time. Of course, I 
when I was playing ball, I was dating different girls and all, but I never found the right one. And I found one that's three miles up the road from my family farm. And I bought her family farm before mom and dad passed away. And we live on her family farm right now. I built her a new house six years ago. And uh, I have two sons. University of Louisville offered them both scholarship. Mm-hmm. And one of them went to Kentucky to play. And so I've had a wonderful life. And I've been in See what you do in basketball. You got to, you know, you're aggressive and you, you work hard. And so this is what I, I let it carry over to my normal life. And it, like in real estate, I, I'm in, I'm a real estate broker and I'm an auctioneer. And um, so uh, it's I've had a really wonderful life. I had a horse rider to call me several years after I'd gotten out and. He said, boy, I've talked to this and talked to that one. They just walk in the street and can't find a job and don't know what to do. And I said, what are you doing? I told him what all I've been doing. And he said, man, you got it together. I said, that's wonderful. And I said, well, you know, basketball, what I did in basketball carried over to my my business world. And and, uh, so that's uh, the kind of life I've lived in. But I tell you what, when I came in here and found that wife that I really wanted and loved, uh, she's 14 years younger than me, uh, and so I mean I got a, I got a jewel there. Good for you, Daryl. That's awesome. Really good for you. I want to wrap up our show today with a couple of two questions here, Daryl. When you look back on your career on the basketball court. What memory do you cherish the most? What was the greatest moment of your basketball career? Well, I just remember just a few little things like like Frank Ramsey. We'd be down 10 points, and he said, Daryl, get us back in the game. I remember hitting three straight threes, and, and uh, then the fourth one would have been a winner, and it just barely rolled out. And I remember a couple things like that. Uh, then uh, I I don't being being in that uh, finals of the finals of the ABA championship was nice and putting Dave DeBusher putting Dave DeBusher out uh, he had thirty eight points and I had twenty six and Bobby had twenty five Bobby Rasko and just little things like that I remember in basketball. I was that that sixty four points came in, and and sixty four points as a freshman that comes to my mind. Then I scored. I was the only Western Kentucky player to score fifty on the road, and then I scored fifty three and and fifty three and and with Kentucky Colonels against the Miami Floridians, and then I hit uh, I believe eleven nine or eleven straight three pointers without a miss. And then leading the three-point percentage out of all the players in the ABA was, was big. Um, then averaging over 20 points a game as a professional, that's pretty pretty heavy stuff, too, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have a lot of good things that uh, that come out when I get to thinking of, thinking of my career. Yep. In 45 playoff games, Daryl, you average just over 20 points a game. And during the regular season, you played 350 games, 
And in those 350 games, your scoring average was exactly 20. You, Daryl Carrier, had a wonderful career, and I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your evening to spend with me to talk to everyone on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Daryl, thank you so much. Well, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate you and your invitation. Thanks so much. You got it. Thank you. Want us to wonder how the career of Daryl Carrier might have changed if he had accepted the scholarship to Kentucky instead of Western Kentucky? Or if he had decided to go to camp with the St. Louis Hawks instead of joining the Phillips 66ers? Perhaps the name Daryl Carrier might be a lot bigger than it is today. Nonetheless, in the annals of ABA history, Daryl Carrier is one of the greatest, and I'd like to thank Daryl for taking the time to visit with us here on Sports Forgotten Heroes. On the next episode, I'll get us back on schedule with the show about the great Pierre Pilat, one of the greatest defensemen in the history of the NHL. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.